0: This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Jason Hibbets, Senior Community Evangelist in Corporate Marketing at Red Hat, where he is a Community Manager for opensource.com. We'll talk with Jason about applying open source practices and open source culture beyond software, especially in the area of open government, and we'll hear about Jason's experience with civic hacking. Enjoy the show. We're delighted to be joined by Jason Hibbets of Red Hat and opensource.com. He's the author of the book, The Foundation for an Open Source City, and he has been active in numerous civic tech events and hackathons, particularly in Raleigh, North Carolina, where he lives. And you can watch a video of a presentation that Jason gave called How Does Raleigh Use Open Source on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com to access that. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll spend probably most of our time talking about open source cities, open government, those kind of things that I know you're heavily involved with, especially there in Raleigh. But before we do that, can you give us a little background on opensource.com? Um, you've referred to it as an open source storytelling platform. So um, what's the goal of that platform?
1: Yeah, so I started at Red Hat in 2003, and about eight years ago, we launched uh, this idea, opensource.com, um, with kind of this, this vision of being, you know, how do we collect all these different open source stories that aren't being told? And so uh, with that idea, um, and also with the idea of how do, we, how do we show how open source is being used beyond technology? Uh, and how do we show how open source is being applied to other disciplines? Um, that was kind of the, the initial piece of it. So where we've gone from 2010 to current, and hopefully beyond, is reaching out to various open source communities and projects and trying to get an understanding of uh, you know what, the, what their needs are, um, what kind of new technology things they're getting into, and really just kind of being a, almost kind of the pulse of what's happening in the open source community. Uh, and we feel really confident that we're accomplishing that based on uh, some of the metrics we follow. Uh, one of our big uh, metrics is page views. And for the last six months, um, probably a little bit longer, we've been getting over a million page views a month mm. um, and, and over uh, about 700,000 unique visitors. So that tells us that people
0: are interested uh, in, the, in the stories that we're publishing. Well, what kind of stories are you publishing?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's really um, the full gamut of open source. Um, I could say, first of all, it's, it's not like the, here's the latest release of XYZ or here's the two no. version of this. tend to focus on maybe a little bit more of the human side of things, But I mean, we're doing everything from open hardware to programming languages like Python and Perl to um, humanitarian FOSS, and and we're just seeing a lot of interest. um, You know, in as I said, the full spectrum of open source. Uh, We we touch on open government, we touch on open healthcare, um, open law is a very popular topic as well, and so you know we're just seeing a lot of interest from the various communities. And what's really interesting for me is that the Uh, When we look at what we publish, on on average, let's say we publish around 100 articles a month. Of those 100 articles, about 60 to 70 of them are coming from the open source community at large. And and so I define that as someone who doesn't have a a redhat.com email address, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're getting stories from, you know, Linux containers is a hot topic. Uh, We just had the OpenStack Summit recently, and we cover OpenStack uh, topics and everything from, like I said, open hardware to sysadmin. And so we've got a a pretty good spectrum of things, which I think is great, because no matter what you're interested in, you're going to have something new every day, uh, a new story every day coming from one of those uh, topics and everything in between.
0: You alluded to this a a bit earlier about how open source practices or or the open source culture can be employed in other areas beyond software. And we'll talk about government, of course, and I think government is kind of a, a at least slightly intuitive about how how that might work. But what about some some other areas? Like uh, you mentioned healthcare, education, things like that. How can the open source culture kind of work there?
1: Yeah, so this is actually how uh, one of the main reasons why we started the project is our big five topics that we were looking to cover were business, education, government, law, healthcare, um we added healthcare later on, and then we had this other category called life, which was just kind of this hodgepodge mm-hmm. of you know different things from open hardware to some programming stuff. And so you know we really felt that the power of the open source model is, is we you know we, Red Hat and a lot of uh, folks within that realm believe is a superior model to developing software. And so how could we take what we know and love from developing software and apply it to these other disciplines? We're seeing some fascinating stuff you know I, I think the education space is, is a really interesting area where we're seeing a lot of kind of principles of open source being applied to how um, we're educating our children and how we're educating ourselves. everything from uh, open um, OERs uh, I'm trying, I want to make sure we get all our acronyms straightened out um, open education resources. And we're seeing platforms like EdX uh, come about and you know so the, we're seeing a lot of kind of free and open content. Um, but we're also seeing um, co-creation of content and really, like, for example, my um, my school district here in, in Raleigh, uh, they really recently made an announcement around getting rid of traditional textbooks and going all open or uh, open education resources uh,
0: in the upcoming school years. How does that play itself out in the classroom?
1: You know, I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, I, I think are definitely kind of technology pieces involved. Uh, we did a story on um, a, a school in, I believe it was Utah, and it was kind of dubbed the Open Source High School, where it was, if you can imagine, uh, kind of a, a remote uh, work environment, but you know, with a classroom setting. So the kids, uh, the, the, the students had uh, assignments they had, they kind of work at their own pace, and then they had an opportunity to participate in um, local sports and, and things at other high schools. But for the most part, um, you know, I think they'd meet in person every so often, but everything else was virtual. Um, learn at your own pace. When you get stuck, you uh, reach out to your teacher and then you can get some one-on-one time um, outside of the, the normal recorded tutorial. So I think that's just kind of really interesting of the, the flexibility that you could even have at the high school level. Um, at other levels, I think it just involves some sort of device where they're reading their material and having, I think, probably a lot more interactive uh, learning opportunities. And I think that's um, when you get that creativeness there. I think that's where a lot of learning really can be accelerated.
0: Jason, how about healthcare? Can you give me an example of how that
1: might work? Yeah, I think uh, there's wow. There's just healthcare is, is amazing because one, there's just so much um, so much data that's available there, but a lot of it's locked down. And so um, Red Hat, through our open source story series, uh, did a really interesting um, short film uh, on uh, treating cancer. And they focused on two patients who really demanded uh, to see their, the data and, and the knowledge and, and the, all the scans and all the information they needed so that they could actually make help make a very informed decision and actually kind of work along with their doctors who were giving them their treatment. And uh, it's just a fascinating kind of story around open data, open source, and healthcare and where we could be. Um, you know, I think a lot of folks now who have to deal with any sort of uh, healthcare, there's still a lot of folks stuck on the pen and paper system, mm-hmm. uh, which is highly inefficient. Uh, and cause is actually room for more mistakes. And so uh, there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity. I definitely encourage um, people to check out the open source story series and, and we'll drop a link in, in the podcast for you.
0: Let's move on to, to government um, and, and some of the things you mentioned in your book, the foundation for an open source city. How can open source lead to open government first of all why don't we why don't we start with this in your opinion or in, in your estimation what is open government
1: this is interesting because as uh, i think you know one government means different things to different people and i believe open government means different things to different people for me i think there's kind of three kind of core components and that's transparency collaboration and participation but to go kind of beyond that you know i think for me open government is really about citizen participation and how we can create two-way dialogues uh, between citizens and government So I think, you know, if if I had to dream big and and say, you know, true what true open government is, it's really um, when when governments would default to being open and citizens have full participation in the decision making process. So you know, that's I think we're far removed from that in our current um, democracy where we have representation, um, which ideally is supposed to represent us, but truly doesn't. Uh, I would say I I read this book uh, a few months ago called Crowdocracy, where it really kind of takes us the concepts of Open source and uh, an inter- intersection of democracy, and it's actually an evolution of democracy of saying, "Hey, you know, we've we've gotten democracy this far, and it's and it's gotten us here, but the the whole concept of." this crowdocracy is to have um, basically have all of our laws kind of be open source projects, so to speak. And and you can present uh, an open source project and people can give some input. And there's a certain period where an incubation period where people would review it. And then basically, um, you would we could kind of redefine communities in the capacity of like, well, what communities does this affect? Is this your local community? Is this your state community? Is this your federal community? And allow people to have more influence to the creation of it. And then have a, more of a voice slash vote in and whether it should be um, passed or not. And the most fascinating thing about the crowdocracy piece is the removal of politicians, and politicians just play a different role in that, where they help foster it through the system as opposed to uh, lobby or, or anything of that nature. So, uh, interesting read if you're into that kind of stuff.
0: In comparison, flawed as they certainly are, there are ways for for citizens to participate. Now there are ways for two-way dialogue. What does the open-source philosophy add to this does it make it easier does it definitely bring more people into it
1: yeah so I think I think that's yeah you kind of touched on touched on kind of where I was alluding to with that um, you know there are certainly public processes in place now for people to participate uh, I would say most of the time that's at 7 p.m on Tuesday in a city hall somewhere where Maybe someone can't physically get to and participate. So I think the open source piece is kind of opening up the aperture to allow more virtual participation, and and I think that's where we have more opportunity to create better dialogue and to create better laws, and and even um, you know even bringing in some concepts of of an agile uh, into into government, which you know uh, beyond kind of. Creating physical code, you know, we're creating uh, or you know, electronic code for computer programs. We're creating code, you know, as in law. I think we just open up that to more than beyond just having to be there and a physical person to be at city hall or to to be right there doing it. It's just, um, I, I think, as we know with open source, it's a very global phenomenon, and, and anyone from anywhere can participate. I think that's really where um, that intersection can can really change things.
0: Your book, The Foundation for an Open Source City, is largely about your experience in Raleigh. What's happening in Raleigh that that makes it an open-source city?
1: The way I kind of outlined uh, the book was to talk about five principles of an open-source city, and, and these are kind of things I saw happening in Raleigh that I thought could apply elsewhere. And so the first piece is to have citizen participation and, and having a culture of openness. The second piece is around kind of defining open government through, through law and through uh, a resolution uh, the third piece is very similar to the the government piece, but having open data and making sure that there's policies and procedures in place to have open data. The fourth component is supporting the communities and the groups and the events that are occurring around having a more open government. And then lastly, is this kind of this idea of um, of a hub for innovation kind of fueled by open source thinking. So not necessarily thinking like, oh, we've got to have open source companies, but kind of making sure we have an open source approach to uh, the innovation. And that's having companies collaborate on things. Maybe they compete at something, but maybe it's having two healthcare or two pharmaceutical companies collaborate on creation of new drugs or or research or whatever that may be instead of, oh, this is mine, mine, mine. Let's open up and share and see where we could do together.
0: And that would be fostered through the instrument of of the local government?
1: Not necessarily. Uh, I think that's just more of it's just the idea of you know, having that culture and having that spirit of um, open is a better way. And so having maybe that having that philosophy penetrate through various uh, pieces, you know, even beyond the government. But I think having that structure within government then permeates out to the respective
0: communities. One of the things you just mentioned, um, open data and, and making sure or, or attempting to have policies that support open data. How hard is that?
1: Wow, um, this is this is a really loaded question. So I, I would say it's different for every city, and but I, I think the biggest barrier is not a technological barrier. Um, there are some some amazing startups and some great technology that can provide you an open data portal. The two pieces that are really tough with open data is making sure that you have accurate anonymized data that adheres to the definition of open data, and then the cultural barriers within government of willingness to give up some of that information. And the reason why folks who work in government may be hesitant to do that is because data may tell... Uh, and people may interpret that data in a different way, right? So it may tell a story that they don't necessarily want to tell, not because they don't want to tell it because it's not the right story. So I think, um, as I said, from a technology perspective,
0: that's a pretty straightforward piece it's making sure we have accurate data that tells the right story. So Jason, tell me how open data came to Raleigh. Was it more luck or was it more influence?
1: Uh, so I think it's a little bit of both, uh, really. So let me tell you, uh, yeah, so, so the first part is, um, I think a lot of cities or towns may not have that technical advocate on a city council or city board. Um, so we were fortunate enough to have a person uh, who realized the potential and value of open data. And so uh, this uh, city councilor, basically went to the city manager and said, we need to budget for open data and we need to budget 50000 to just get started. And which I think was interesting because that's not normally how we do our budget here in Raleigh. Um, usually the city manager will uh, come up with a proposed budget and then set it to city council. Uh, it was very rare in this instance where our city councilor said, we need to make sure that we have this line item in here into the budget. Um, so that was fascinating because it came through. And then, uh, from that, you know, stemming from our open government resolution that kind of stated, hey, we should have um, an open data program. And then it just kind of went from there. We were able to hire uh, an open data program manager. Uh, we were able to get the infrastructure in place, and where they spent most of their time, this uh, open data program manager, was going to each department and understanding what data do you have, what state of is that data in, um, you know, because, A tabular, a 60-page PDF of the budget is not very valuable, uh, whereas if we can have uh, that data in a more open format that's API accessible, uh, then we could uh, provide more value to our citizens. So a little bit of luck, uh, a little bit of advocacy, and I would just encourage folks um, that are interested that don't, you know, where their city doesn't have an open data program to just go find that internal advocate. It may be on city council, it may be on staff. Um, there's someone there that hopefully you could work with and partner with
0: to uh, to begin that journey. Beyond Raleigh, are are you hearing about uh, other cities that have become open source cities?
1: There are definitely a lot of other cities um, that, are, that have open government and open data initiatives. Uh, as unfortunate as it may sound, I'm not sure if the open source city brand is very appealing to many of those cities or any politicians per se. However, I am very encouraged to see that there are lots of other cities out there that have open data policies uh, that have open government resolutions. Um, you know some of the early trailblazers here: uh, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, some of those larger metropolitan areas. Um, I think you know the reason why Raleigh was able to accelerate what we did was because they did all the hard work and all the legwork to figure out what works and what doesn't. So, as, in a very open source way, we were able to borrow what worked and then apply it to us. Um, and there's a lot of other a lot of other cities out there. Uh, Pittsburgh, uh, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina is doing some great stuff. Uh, and, and really through a nonprofit called Code for America, um, they've really helped stimulate some of the desire um, for not only city governments and, and county governments and beyond to, to participate in open government, but really engage citizens through their brigade program. And so there are literally hundreds of brigades all over the United States where citizens are participating in uh, kind of the civic hacking movement and working in partnership with their local governments to help improve their communities.
0: What is civic hacking?
1: Yeah, this is a loaded question too. Uh, so civic <laughs> hacking, for me, uh, so I like to think of it as, you know if you can apply it to, if you are familiar with things like life hacking, or I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the do-it-yourself movement, the maker movement, Yeah. really taking uh, a creative approach to problem solving for your local community. And so in the sense of civic hacking, I think you know most people probably have a perception that the government moves really slow and how can we accelerate that? Uh, and so one way for us to do that is to, is to hack on the system and, and not hack on it in a bad way, but be like, well, we have this problem. Well, how can we solve it in a different fashion? And it's, it's kind of taking the mentality of, well, just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean we have to do it this way. So how can we creatively together um, do things, right? And so an example of, of an application that I like to talk about a lot is uh, something called Adopta. Uh, Adopta can be thought about if you're an open source um, person as kind of a bug tracking tool for city infrastructure. So it started in the city of Boston and they did a project called Adopt a Fire Hydrant. And so the problem they were trying to solve was they don't literally have enough people power to go out and clear the fire hydrants after a major snow and ice event. So they allowed citizens to adopt fire hydrants, just like we would adopt streams or adopt a a road Mm -hmm. uh, to do some uh, trash cleanup, litter cleanup. Um, people can adopt a fire hydrant and then you know help clean out the snow after uh, after a storm. So this spread across the country. It went to um, uh, it went to the city of Seattle where they do adopt a storm drain. You know, it rains a lot in Seattle, so citizens help clear out the debris and sticks and leaves that get in storm drains. It went to the city and county of Honolulu where they did adopt a tsunami siren, where citizens help with monthly testing of the tsunami warning system. And then my um, my brigade here in Raleigh, uh, we brought it back here to do adopt a bus shelter where you know citizens can sign up to kind of keep the bus shelters uh, tidy and report any incidents going on, like maintenance needs or anything like that. So in, in true open source fashion, it's take this kind of code base, this uh, the application that is for city infrastructure and apply it to what you need help with in your area,
0: in your community. And the idea of a hackathon has even been applied to this area, right? I imagine that you've, you've been to some of these.
1: Yeah, I, not only have I been to them, I've organized my fair share and I will do so as, as we see fit. I mean, I think, uh, so there's a bunch of different ways that hackathons can happen. I think most people probably hear about like the 24 hour or 48 hour hackathon where it's just like, we're going to get together in a short amount of time and we're going to crank out code or crank out solutions to problems and or explore solutions to problems. But I think what we're... And, and so the challenge we've seen with that format is you get together for a short amount of time, a few hours, and then you create something and then it just kind of... A lot of it doesn't stick. And so I think what we're seeing now is just, uh, this rise of what I would call sustainable civic hacking of... How can we take this concept of a civic hackathon where people get together for a short amount of time and use that more uh, from an agile perspective, use that more as a sprint to advance uh, an existing project or advance advance something that's already existing? So I think it's the balance of you know civic hackathons are traditionally, hey, let's go create something new. But I think where I see the movement going now is civic hackathons are, let's come together to advance what we already have and to enhance what we already have. So I think that's where I see it going. And I think that's definitely helping us be more sustainable and more. uh, I think we're going to get more participation because people can see that it's not just throwaway code or throwaway ideas. Uh, It's something that's actually adding value uh, to the community.
0: Hey, let's go back to something you mentioned a few moments ago, uh, the the Code for America project. Um, Can you talk about your experience with the Code for America Brigade National Advisory Committee?
1: Sure. So... um, so Code for America is a nonprofit. They're based out of San Francisco, uh, California, and um, and so traditionally they've had a couple of different programs. One of them uh, was their fellowship program, where they bring in um, different fellows and they send them to different cities to basically code an open source project. They've been doing that for a couple of years, and they're actually they've pivoted recently to kind of change that model. So that's kind of still being flushed out. But they also had this brigade program, which is the idea of we're going to support the citizens out there who want to do this civic hacking, and so. What they did last year um, was they wanted to be, you know, there was kind of more of a central centralized model uh, that eventually was evolving. Uh, and so they said, well, we want to get some advice from the people who are actually out there doing it. And so they decided to create this National Advisory Council. And that started in about October slash November of, of 2016. So we're just kind of coming up on the six month uh, timeframe. And uh, here in May 2017, uh, we actually will have our first Technically our second. We we met at their Code for America Summit, but our first kind of meeting as a National Advisory Council uh, in-person meeting. And so we're getting together um, and we're going to talk about how um, we're going to talk about the current state of the brigades. We're going to talk about um, how we want to make decisions and how we want to move forward with the Advisory Council. Uh, so far, I've had a great experience. There's eight other individuals uh, from across the United States that are outstanding and, and doing some amazing work in their local communities. And we get to get we get to, along very great. We've got a lot of ideas, but a lot of it comes down to is uh, what do we want our results uh, to be? And so I think we're going to get some uh, some some clarity on that and and see uh, how we want to really uh, help advance the civic hacking movement through the brigade program.
0: Jason, going back to like the whole the whole thing about an open source culture should. Programmers Should people with, with the actual programming backgrounds get more involved? Why, why is it important um, for that community to get more involved in civic efforts such as local government?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the main reason why I think programmers uh, should get involved is because they know how to solve problems and they know how to solve problems with code and they bring a different kind of uh, philosophy or different mindset to that. And I would even broaden that out, Like just with any kind of open source projects, we apply this to open government and civic hacking. We need uh, people from a variety of different disciplines to participate, right? I think there's kind of the, you need community uh, managers, project managers to help manage the different projects. We need designers uh, to help, help us kind of, not just kind of design like the, the physical assets and, and you know, maybe logos or whatever, but like to actually design a process around how citizens uh, would interact with the program uh, and doing some of that design thinking work, Uh, we need, we actually just need citizens to help us understand like, you know, how they would actually interface with, uh, how they interface with government now and how they would prefer to interface with government. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to include people from all sorts of disciplines, programmers, definitely, because uh, like I said, they bring a different uh, mindset to it. But also um, where I see a lot of opportunity, one of the um, areas I'm seeing kind of evolve uh, on the civic hacking side, uh, I, I... have a, a couple of different kind of models in my head. One of those models I call the augmentation model. And this is where a government agency uh, actually would own, let's just say, an open source project. And then they would uh, come to hackathons or come to uh, regular meetups and present to them, hey, this is our feature list, or this is uh, this is our wish list of things we would like to add to this program. We don't have either one, the staff, the time, the resources, or the talent to actually get that done. And I think there's a great volunteer opportunity for programmers to volunteer some of their coding expertise to augment our um, our eight, our government agencies uh, with code or talent or whatever that may be. And and this way, they the reason why I love this model is because a programmer can just come and spend a couple hours and, and hacking on something, and it has a real impact. On the team working on that project, which ultimately has an impact on the citizens using the app. So I think it's a, it's definitely something we should explore and see uh, where where that where that works and does it work act, work in reality or work on the street, right? Well, if any
0: of our listeners uh, who are programmers uh, are hearing this right now, are there any resources for them currently to encourage them or to help them get more involved?
1: Yeah, I would. Say, I mean, from uh, from my area of expertise, I would say just definitely look to see if there's a local brigade in your in your city or town. Like I said, there's hundreds all over. Most of the major metropolitan areas have uh, some sort of brigade or you know hack for change or a hack for good kind of thing. Um, so look to see what's already there, uh, and then and just show up and and then really you know uh, the good organizers will help you
0: match uh, your skills to what projects are happening and. And I would start there. Okay, Jason, this has been great. Um, if people want to find out more about you or what you're working on, where can they go online?
1: Yeah, so um, if you're interested in the book, uh, opensourcecity.com, uh, the the book is freely available. Uh, it's a PDF, EPUB, uh, and in a very open source spirit, the entire source code is available on GitHub. Uh, I think literally the only thing that's not open source about my book is the paper. So if I could have found a recipe for that, I would have. Uh, but anyway, um, I hang out on Twitter at, at jhibbets. And definitely, you know, if we've got folks out there that are interested in Code for America, uh, I would encourage them to, to check out codeforamerica.org, uh, see the work that they're up to. Uh, they're doing some amazing things. And since we live in very interesting times, uh, I think uh, this is just another way for for citizens and, and people interested to volunteer their time uh, to have a real impact in our various communities.
0: So uh, thanks for having me. I think it's been great and I uh, really appreciate it. Indeed. thank Jason Hibbs. thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Videos of presentations from O'Reilly's OZCON conference, which was held in early May in Austin, Texas, can be viewed on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business platform. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, which accompany this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.